Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today we have what is likely the furthest podcast we've ever recorded. Dialing in from Hong Kong, we have John Wood, founder of the charity Room to Read. And he's also an author of the book Purpose Incorporated, along with others such as Leaving Microsoft to Change the World, Zach the Yak with Books on His Back, a children's book, and Creating Room to Read. And we're going to, of course, hear more about Room to Read and the book that uh, is called Purpose Incorporated later in the podcast. But you might have heard of the charity Room to Read from uh, various sources. But what's interesting is that I heard about Room to Read through the Tech Bikers Initiative that Easy Vidra, a longtime friend, started. And, you know, if you haven't heard Easy's podcast on our show, you definitely should. And it's really interesting to see how Tech Bikers has not only brought together the tech community, but also brought awareness to the Room to Read initiative. But back to John. He has an impressive story. John has been named by Goldman Sachs as one of the world's 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs. He's been a three-time speaker at the Clinton Global Initiative, is a five-time winner of Fast Company's Magazine's uh, Social Capital Award, and has been honored with Time Magazine's Asian Heroes Award and selected as Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum. Alongside other distinctions that he's had, he holds a master's degree in uh, business administration from Kellogg Graduate School of Management, and he got his bachelor's at University of Colorado. And so with that amazing background, welcome to our show, John. Thank you, Carlos. It's great to be here. So as, as we mentioned uh, it, when we were chatting before, uh, we like to, to talk about uh, what your first job after college was, considering that you, know, you studied finance. So maybe you can walk us through that fun part of your life right after college. Well, my answer is so boring that it's uh, almost guaranteed to not lead to a follow-up question. Uh, my first job out of college was actually as an auditor. Uh, I was with Deloitte in Chicago trying to get my CPA and then use that as a springboard to graduate school. And then from there, I went into banking, uh, which didn't really work out. I wasn't really a very good banker, so I wasn't a very good fit. And then eventually when I found Microsoft, it was really the first time I'd ever had a full-time job where I felt like it was a good fit between myself and the company. You know, transitioning from auditing to banking to now Microsoft, what, what role did you end up having in Microsoft? Well, at the time in 1991, Microsoft was putting together and launching their first financial accounting software for small business. So it was my way in the door because I needed somebody who knew a bit about accounting, a bit about finance. Um, it wasn't the uh, most obvious thing for me. I wasn't a tech guy. Uh, I had to learn a lot. Microsoft had a pretty uh, notoriously difficult interviewing process. So put a lot of time in, put a lot of studying in and was very fortunate to get hired there in 1991 and spent about eight years with the company, mostly in international markets, helping to develop uh, markets across Asia, Africa, other developing economies. Yeah, how long were you there at Microsoft for? For eight years. I was there from 1981 to 1999, which were really good growth years for the organization. Uh, I really loved traveling overseas and living overseas. So most of my career, I spent the first couple of years in, in Seattle but then um, started clamoring for assignments to go live overseas in places that I thought were, you know, no offense to Seattle, it's a great city, but uh, I really wanted to travel the world and get to see a lot of the 
uh, markets and meet a lot of the people outside of the United States. So most of my career was spent in the uh, developing economies. Yeah, and, and I think that without giving away the, the punchline to how you came up with the Room to Read initiative and, and your trip to the Himalayas, I want to explore a little bit about your time at Microsoft, considering that you've written a book about purpose. If you look back at those years at Microsoft, and you know those were early years in Microsoft history, I guess, and purpose might have not been something that people were considering. Could you look back at, the, at, at that time and, and find a purpose that Microsoft was instilling within its employees? How, how was that in, in, in a large organization like Microsoft? Well, I think Microsoft changed a lot over the years. Part of the reason I left when I did in 1999 was I felt like a lot of what, what I was doing with my day was really making rich people richer, that the stock had done well, the company had done extremely well. You know, a lot of that was hard work. A lot of that was vision. But a lot of it also just to me felt like, okay, we're doing really well for ourselves. And yeah, you can argue that, you know, great software, you know, kind of democratizes the world and is a good thing for the world. I would never deny that. But I also just got this feeling in my um, my heart that when companies are extremely successful, uh, that's a good opportunity to go find ways to stand for something bigger than themselves. And, and I think, you know, Satya at Microsoft today as a third generation CEO is doing more and more of that. Um, but I didn't really feel when I was at Microsoft in 1999 that I was really doing that much good for society. And that's really what led me to start thinking about leaving and eventually to starting the creation of Room to Read because I just felt like I could stay in, in that job for 30 or 40 more years and probably make a lot of money. But at the end of my life, at the end of my career, I'd probably look back and regret not having done something that was uh, a little bit more socially useful. Mm, fair enough. And then the title of your book, Leaving Microsoft to Change the World, says it all. But as I understand, it, it all started with the trip to the Himalayas. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that faithful trip. Yeah, so what happened to me is in 1998, I was at my seven-year anniversary with Microsoft. I kind of had the seven-year itch. I wanted to go off and do something to uh, get away from it all. Um, there was a rumor if you went high enough in the Himalayas, you could escape the, uh, escape the sound of Steve Ballmer um, yelling at you to work harder. Developers, developers, developers. Uh, Steve was great, actually. I, lo I loved working for Steve. I was very inspired by him as much as I joke about joke about it. But I, you know, I was in need of a break, and so I went off to do this 18-day trek in the Himalayas called the Annapurna Circuit. Didn't expect to have what happened happen. I met a headmaster on the second day of my trek who invited me to come visit his school. Uh, like many schools in the developing world, it was you know kind of hopeful because a lot of kids were showing up but really sad because the conditions in which they were either learning or in this case not learning uh, were just really um, eye-opening. They, they had 80 kids crammed into a room that probably shouldn't have held more than 20. They had dirt floors. They had no desks. And I guess most alarmingly, they had a library that was completely devoid of books. And that really caught my eye because as a kid, I don't know about your listeners, I was a total library nerd as a kid. I loved to read. I loved to get big stacks of books and read them and learn about the world and um, the, the fact that they had 450 students in this library, with, in this school, I mean, with an empty library, really hit me. And, and the headmaster and I talked about it, and he gave me a challenge. He challenged me to come back with enough books to open that first library. And I got excited. I vowed that within a year I'd be back and um, shook hands and headed out. And that little encounter, which was completely random, uh, I'm still shocked that, you know, fate even brought me together with that headmaster, but that encounter changed my life and my life's trajectory forever. Taking a, an encounter like that and building an organization around it, isn't, it makes it 
you know, sound really easy when you say it the way you just did, but it, it took years of, of work. Maybe walk us through that, that process. I know you wrote a book on that process. So, you know, to some extent, I'm probably trying to ask you to compress something into, into a very small amount of time, but maybe you can start off with what was the first thing you did to tangibly move that needle in the right direction to what ended up being room to read? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a sales guy. So the first thing I did is I wrote my pitch. I, I, over the next 16 days, I, I haven't had my journal with me. I composed a letter, then edited it, ple- pleading with friends around the world um, to send books to help this village of Bahundan in Nepal have its first library. Once I got back to a place with a cyber cafe, put that note together and sent it out to friends around the world saying, please send books to either my parents' home in Colorado as the collection point from North America or my home in Sydney. I was living in Australia at the time. And I was just overwhelmed with the number of people who responded positively, who said things, you know, like I've traveled in Nepal and I've seen the poverty. I've wanted to help, but it doesn't really feel good to just give a handout. And what you're doing, the first library is really a hand up, not a handout. Fast forward a year later, I went back to that village with my 73-year-old father uh, in tow as my unpaid right-hand man. Uh, we had 3,000 books in the back of six donkeys. Um, and it was just an incredibly exciting day for us, for the village, for the teachers, for the students who all came out. And it felt great to know that we had brought a library to that one little village. But what didn't feel great was thinking about the fact that 770 million people in the world lack basic literacy. And if you think about that just for a minute, you know, you know, that many people, 770 million plus who can't read or write, one library was not going to be enough. It was time to start thinking much, much bigger. So within, you know, 24, 36 hours of opening that first library, our thoughts started to turn to, okay, what's next? How can we supersize this? And so how did you supersize it? Well, the biggest issue for me was going to be that once I went back to Microsoft, the company would always have first dibs on my time. And I could have done libraries throughout, you know, places in Vietnam, Cambodia, Nepal, places I was thinking about. I could have tried to do that as a hobby. Um, the problem is that hobbies don't scale. The only thing that really scales is when you go all in. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners who have done startups know that. You, you, can't, you can't have six things going on at once. You've got to have one thing and one thing only. So the question for me was, what will my one thing be? Will it be Microsoft or will it be actually starting this group that was then called Books for Nepal that eventually morphed into this group now called Room to Read? And um, it was a tough decision um, because I was going to be giving up a lot of security, status, financials, et cetera, by leaving Microsoft and doing this full time. But I knew that if I didn't do it, I would always question myself and I would always wonder what might have been. So I, um, in May of 1999, I told my boss I was quitting. Uh, I left in August and I often joked that I jumped out of the Microsoft airplane and I prayed the parachute would deploy correctly. Well, I think you you and many others were probably uh, jumping off right at the right time because, I mean, the entire economic collapse of the tech world happened just shortly afterwards. Yeah, and the thing is, is I have to emphasize to your listeners that when I left Microsoft, I wasn't a zillionaire. I mean, I didn't have enough money to go start a foundation. What I had was enough money to have a safety net that would allow me to work for no pay for the first couple of years to prove that I had skin in the game. But it was fairly terrifying because I was already nervous financially. And of course, the markets imploded and the first tech bubble burst. And here I am trying to, you know, go out and collect money to build libraries in Nepal. And the world's panicking about the fact that their stocks are down by 50%. So it was a really difficult time to launch a, a, you know, a new cash strapped NGO. But uh, 
we persevered and like a lot of startups, you just have to get up every day and focus on what's working and, and just kick yourself in the butt and say, you know, compared to the world's poorest children, my lot in life is not so bad. I have to just put my best salesman smile on my face and get out there and convince more people to get behind this initiative. So we're going to fast forward a little bit on the timeline of, of this initiative to today, being that, you know, it's it's 18 years old at this point. In many ways, you've touched so many people, not just in, in the area you originally started off. You know, you, your, your impact has been felt across Bangladesh, uh, India, Indonesia, Jordan, Rwanda, South Africa, Vietnam, Zambia. And so... You know, the, the, the reach has been astronomical with 15 million children being the goal by 2020. And that time has been such, such a, such an impactful time for, for the world. And, and it's also probably been a huge amount of change within the organization of Room to Read. Maybe you can walk us through the, what Room to Read does today. So, you know, from where you started, but what it does today, just so that everybody who's listening understands what, what the scope of Room to Read is today, but also kind of what the, the, the key points of inflection were in the development of the organization, you know, whether it was the staff you hired or the size and scale that it, it hit that then allowed you to, to do more. Yeah, definitely. So I was very fortunate that I had two really strong co-founders. Um, one uh, who came on first, Dinesh Shrusta, was a really smart guy in Nepal who volunteered his time to get us off the ground. We wanted to make sure our focus was on strong local empowerment. In other words, we didn't want to send Americans overseas to drive around in Land Rovers and tell the local people what to do. We said we're going to hire strong Nepalese in Nepal and strong Vietnamese in Vietnam and give, have them have the uh, control and the empowerment. Uh, our other co-founder, Erin Ganju, had cut her teeth at both Goldman Sachs and at Unilever in Vietnam. So we had a really strong founding team. Uh, our goal was to think big about, about this issue. We, we believe very much in the, the sea bomberism of go big or go home. And if we're going to do this, we're all going to make financial sacrifices to do this. We need to think big. So we set a big, hairy, audacious goal of uh, reaching 10 million students by the year 2020, which we were told was a crazy hubristic goal for a little cash-strapped unknown NGO. Uh, but as you referenced, we actually got to that goal five years early. We reached our 10 million student in 2015. We're on track to reach at least 15 million students by 2020, although I think we'll go a lot higher. And so what, what caused that? Well, I think one of the biggest inflection points for us was that we created a direct model where there was a direct causal link between what somebody gave to Room to Read and what we could do with it. So we would say, for example, if you want to fund a school library, here's what it costs, and we'll connect you up through photos through video, through site visits. So you can go see that school in Vietnam, that school in Cambodia or India that you helped. We also have a very low overhead model. So we can tell our investors that we are amongst the most efficient charities in the world. So when you give to us, know that there's tight financial management. We have donated office space from Credit Suisse and the Financial Times. I fly on donated frequent flyer miles. We have hotel partnerships to get free nights. And that was really important, I think, to get a lot of the uh, financial community behind us because when I saw that we had very tight financial controls, and the money went further, it gave them every incentive to say, okay, this is a much more leveraged investment than if we give it to a group that's driving around the developing world in Land Rovers and spending our money in, in, in you know, non-productive ways. And then finally for us, it was just a focus really on what we call GSD. Uh, you know, three simple letters, GSD, get shit done. You know, don't sit around talking about the problem. Get out there, roll up your sleeves, act on the solution. And I'm very proud to say that we now have worked in over 20,000 communities uh, with our literacy and library programs, uh, we've reached 12.4 million students 
student's life to date. And that we consider to be a good down payment on the dream. But we have a long, long ways to go. And we're not going to stop. We're not going to slow down until we get that number a lot higher. Okay. So <clears throat> on the on the point of inflections, was there ever a point in, in your trajectory of 18 years where something did look like it was not going to work, like where there was a possibility that Room to Read was not going to be able to continue working. And I think many founders go through that dark phase and, and wondering whether Room to Read had that, other than sort of the, the usual early start, which is, you know, I think everybody has that in common. But, you know, maybe yeah. maybe after the first year where, where it was just something happened. Well, you know, I think I, I would also talk about the positive inflection points because those are the ones that were super fun for us. But, yeah, I would say that and the biggest difficulty for us was that in the early years, we had dozens and then hundreds of communities asking to work with us. Right. If you look at post Khmer Rouge, Cambodia, uh, post Civil War, Sri Lanka, there were so many communities that wanted to work with us. But our budget was limited because we hadn't yet hit scale on fundraising. And while that doesn't have a lot of drama attached to it, it actually has psychologically for me, it had a lot of drama because I felt like I was letting these kids down. How can you tell any parent who wants their child to get educated to have their child get literate? Sorry, we can't help you this year. Uh, and then all that's going to mean is your kid gets another year older and doesn't have a, have a chance to get educated. So a big thing for us was trying to find a way to scale uh, our finances. It's one something that brought me together with Easy Vidra. As soon as Easy told me about the vision for tech bikers, I said, Sign me up to help in any way I can, because if you get this right, it means more money comes in. Uh, no money equals no mission. More money equals more mission. So we really had to figure out early on how can we scale the fundraising. Uh, I'm very, very proud to say that from our first year budget of $35,000, uh, the second year we raised 165000 Life to date now, um, 17 years in, we're, we're somewhere right around $500 million we've been able to raise for this cause. It's one of the most... Uh, heavy fundraising lifts of any organization founded in this century. Uh, and we're super happy with that. But again, I keep emphasizing we got a long ways to go because there's tens of millions of kids out there we still haven't reached. And we, we have to reach them because education is the best hope they have. Fair enough. Across that journey, you've learned some lessons, which you put together into a book uh, titled Purpose Incorporated. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. But before we get there, um, it's probably useful for the audience uh, to summarize a little bit about wh what it talks through. And in a review on the website topnonprofits.com, Nicole Smith summarized it as um, Purpose Incorporated is about a brand that is genuinely mission-driven, doesn't simply host an annual day of service or publish a casual corporate social responsibility tweet. Uh, they prove it on a daily basis through its corporate decisions, partnerships, and employee adoption of these values. Savvy modern media influencers are quick to scrutinize brands whose marketing doesn't match their walk. Same goes for impactful investors who can quickly decipher the true contributions from the takers. The bottom line is this, purpose connects and connections are good for business. On that note, John, walk us through the conclusions that you came to that, that drove the writing of this book. Sure. The, the book, I think the subtitle says it all. The book is titled Purpose Incorporated, and that is a intentional double entendre. My belief is that when companies incorporate purpose into their very DNA and into their business model, they are stronger as a result. Uh, the subtitle is Turning Cause into Your Competitive Advantage. And I think that um, what we're trying to say in the book is that we think the smartest business leaders today 
are realizing that purpose is not a nice to have. It's not some little um, bolt on. It's not a one off. Purpose should, uh, could, can, and I believe should be incorporated in the company's DNA. So if you look at some of the most successful companies we profiled in the book, like a company like, like Salesforce, for example, or my friends in uh, Australia, Sydney headquartered at Lassian, where they've signed the pledge 1%, where they tell their employees, look, the company does well. That's great because you're going to do well. But also, we've signed the pledge 1% agreement. We're going to give 1% of equity and 1% of employee time and 1% of our licenses to good causes. That can be a huge advantage in recruiting. It's a definite advantage in motivation and retention. It's a great way to connect with your customer. So the main point of the book is that in the old days, I think purpose was viewed by a lot of companies as being something that was antithetical to profitability. It was just about, it was just about giving money away. And as a result, a lot of companies resisted doing it because they thought that was going to be deleterious to their profits. The main focus of this book is the fact that purpose and profitability can coexist. Cause and capitalism can coexist because the smartest business leaders are realizing that when a company stands for something bigger than themselves, it's an inherent advantage in terms of attracting and retaining customers and keeping them motivated, in terms of looking good on social media, in terms of recruiting. We know that 80% of millennials ask during their, their initial interviews, is this company part of the problem or is this company part of the solution? And so if business leaders can't answer the question, what's this company all about? Does this company stand for something bigger than just itself and its own self-perpetuation? Then they're really behind the times and they'll fall further and further behind because I believe the world is moving much more in a direction of companies, uh, customers and their employees expecting that company to be a force for good in the world. Now, obviously, it means they can't take their eye off the ball. They still have to have great products, the right price, the right promotion, the right channels, et cetera. But purpose, we believe, can be the fifth P. Purpose can be up there with product and price as a differentiator for a company, for its brand, for its products, for its services. And you do a great job of, of, of highlighting that in, the, in your book. You, you go through all the case studies and you go through uh, each one of the factors that prove that purpose built into the company can can drive not only economic profit but effectively corporate happiness if, if, if that's such a thing and you know you do that through uh, I'm just going to read some of the, the chapter headings which help sort of create some structure around maybe the conversation you know you you justify the profitability that comes from having purpose be a, a center of the organization um, you do mention the fifth P you then talk about social media and, and how purpose can be a huge part of, of the social media war. And then a huge part of the book is dedicated to how it can be used for retaining and hiring and motivating uh, people and talent, especially in a highly competed uh, environment, especially in tech companies, for example. And then you, you talk about partnerships and purpose and how that helps unify the ecosystem investors, regulation, and, and dealing with regulators. And then you end with actually what I would argue might have been at the very beginning, which is you, uh, meaning you being the ultimate X factor and the dangers of paying lip service in the purpose, in the purpose wars. And maybe, um, we can start with that last bit first, which is there's so many, people that have woken up to the fact that purpose is such a driver of economic benefit now that there is the big risk of it being a lip service thing. What is the number one thing people can do to avoid that uh, and also audit that since you start as an auditor? How can you audit 
false purpose. Well, I th- look, I think today's consumers have pretty finely honed bullshit detectors. Um, if a company says it's doing good for the world, but they can't put up the statistics or they can't tell the stories about how that is, is the case, then people are going to people are going to recognize it. You know, we wrote in in the book, you know, about some of the things like Volkswagen spending tens of millions of dollars bragging about how they were so supposedly so environmentally friendly. And then, of course, the whole diesel emission scandal broke in the United States, showing that they were not walking the walk. Um, we talk in the book about Pepsi when they did their their Kendall Jenner ad, which kind of, you know, made a little bit of a mockery of the whole Black Lives Movement protests that were happening in the U.S. And Pepsi, to their credit, took the ad down very quickly and apologized for it and it admitted it was tone deaf. But I do think that companies, when they are trying to orient themselves around purpose, it has to be real. Because if it's not real, their employees and their customers will recognize it and the company will, will, will pay, you know, pay, the, pay the price for that. Fortunately, in my research for the book, I found more and more companies that were not trying to use, use purpose cynically they were trying to use it because a lot of people say, hey, I want, I want my career to be about doing good for the world. I want my company to be doing good for the world. Right? You've got Vicky Sai and Brad Murray, the co-founders of Tatcha, a skincare brand, which very early on did something called Beautiful Faces, Beautiful Futures. And the idea behind it was that every time somebody bought one of their products, they would donate enough money to room to read for a girl to go to school for one year through our long-term girl scholarship program. And they've now funded well over one million girl days of schooling. Um, when it's like that, it's real to the consumer because they're putting up transparently what the business model is, what the results are, who their charity partner is. And there's just so many case studies now that uh, we had for the book that were really exciting of companies that were realizing that purpose was not antithetical to profitability, that when they did it right and they did it strategically, purpose and profitability actually were very symbiotic and worked hand in hand. And the book's full of a lot of examples. I think if the book just preached being purposeful, the book would be kind of boring. Um, so what we try to do is to get as many examples as possible so anybody could read it and say, okay, I like this company's example. I can take this to my next management meeting. And indeed, Tech Bikers is one of the stories we profile in the book because that was a case where Easy, having opened the Google campus uh, in uh, London in Shoreditch, really wanted to find a way to bring the tech ecosystem together. But a lot of startups, he admitted, were a little bit suspicious of Google. Why are they inviting me into this campus? Are they going to try to take my employees or steal my ideas? And what happened is Easy said to all of them, look, let's get together and do a charity ride, Paris to London, to raise money for Room to Read. And that brought a lot of people together from the tech community who might otherwise be a little bit introverted, maybe staring at their laptops. And guess what? They put down their laptops. They picked up their bike. They raised well over half a million dollars life to date for Room to Read. And as a result of that, people have co-invested in each other's companies. They've done startups together after meeting through tech bikers. There's even been a marriage um, through tech bikers. So a great example, again, of how purpose could actually bring an entire um, business ecosystem together um, through the power of knowing you're going to do good for the world. And as we've mentioned, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed my, my tech bikers experience. And, and for sure, I can, I can vouch for all, all the examples you gave. But I think that it's actually a tricky thing to sort of bring purpose out in an existing organization versus a new one. You know, I, I think some of the examples that you use um, are arguably maybe intrapreneurship examples um, in some cases. And in other cases, there's something that the company was born with. Now, uh, an example of, of what I would call an intrapreneurship purpose initiative is the example you give of CVS with the, with the, the smoking um, transition. Do you want to share that narrative, but also maybe highlight 
how it is that that is still within the scope of a purpose uh, driven organization because it wasn't clear to me that that is indicative that the whole organization has embraced purpose as an ongoing thing rather than just as a as a one initiative. CVS was one of my favorite case studies that I came across while writing this book. And for those who don't live in America, you may not know CVS is it was the um, biggest healthcare or pharmacy chain in America, over six thousand locations. If you're in New York City, there's you know one every second block. Um, CVS made a decision that they were going to stop selling cigarettes because they were publicly saying that CVS was all about healthcare, where we're coming that makes you healthier. You know, you can come in and get vitamins, get nutrition, get supplements, whatever it is you need. But as people walked into that part of the store, they were walking past a cigarette counter. And at one point, their company leadership said, how can we plausibly claim that we are a company that's all about good health when we are studying a deadly product or sorry, selling a deadly product? And it was a tough decision for them, I'm sure, because cigarettes were a $2 billion a year business. Cigarettes are an addictive product. They drive store traffic. They would drive repeat visits. And of course, when people are in a store to buy cigarettes, they may buy some other things also. So it was not an easy decision, I'm sure, for CVS to make, but their CEO said, quote, this is simply the right thing to do. We need to do it. And he challenged the management team to say, find other things we can do with that store space, find other things we can do as a company. Shortly after they acquired Target's minute clinic businesses where people can go in and get quick healthcare screening and quick healthcare checkups. And then later, um, of course, did their um, big uh, push to merge with Aetna which I don't think CVS could have even pulled that off had they still been selling cigarettes. So here's a case where short-term, yeah, it's a bit difficult to make that pivot, but medium-term, long-term, it was the right thing to do, and they're a stronger company as a result of it. And when they've done studies, they've actually found that in markets where they've withdrawn and no longer sell cigarettes in their 6,000-plus stores, the overall rates of smoking have gone down. In other words, it wasn't just that the smoker went somewhere else to buy cigarettes. It actually meant that fewer people are smoking, and hopefully that means that fewer people have to lose loved ones to deadly diseases like cancer. Very purpose-driven, but again, for CVS, they've done very well as a company since making that announcement. Their, their stock has done very, very well. Yeah, and, and it was a great example of how like a, one minor thing can make such a big impact. But how did how how can an organization you know that that's CVS was pretty big when when this went. And this happened, but how can an organization that's big, let's pick on Microsoft since you work there. It's like, how can you then find something uh, within the organization, audit it, and then drive that purpose behind it such that you can revitalize maybe a, a purpose that died long ago or was never there or, or, or can generate change with from within? I think it somewhat depends on where you are in the organization. If, if you're not at a super senior level, you, you can't get frustrated that you may not change the entire company. Uh, I had a book event last night here in Hong Kong, and I told somebody, I said, don't worry about changing the entire company. Just go change your division. Just go do one thing in your division that's very purpose-driven. So if your division's biggest issue right now is you're having trouble keeping your employees motivated, well, maybe you tie your quarterly sales goal to something that's purpose-related. Say, okay, guys, if we make our, make our sales goal for this quarter, we'll go fund a library through Room to Read in Vietnam, or we'll fund a well through Charity Water. Just find a way to tie a single performance metric or a set of them to some kind of good social outcome. You don't have to necessarily change the entire company in, in the first week. For most of the readers of this book, that's outside the scope of their responsibility. And I really wanted to write this book in a way that frontline troops, that younger employees can feel a strong sense of purpose. So I would say it's important to sometimes just start with one initiative, 
sometimes it's important to start with just one division. But quite often what happens is as these things take off and other divisions hear about them, they say, hey, that's a great idea. We'd like to adopt this. We, we saw this through our partnership with, short partnership with Citibank. We started with just one division, the foreign trading division, uh, on a purpose-driven initiative between Room Street and Citibank. But once other divisions heard about it, they said, oh, that's a great idea. We want in. And the initiative got bigger and bigger and bigger uh, within Citibank. And that's you know a, re- a really large organization, but it's the case of a couple of frontline employees starting something, catalyzing it, skunk working it, and then bingo, other divisions say we want in, and it gets bigger and bigger, and it begins to snowball. And, and what do you think the future of organizations is when you look at and compare this example you just gave of like a Citibank where they're effectively adopting a cause or adopting a purpose and that, that enables maybe morale and, and sort of drive and purpose to be inserted into an organization where that's not the inherent business model or anything related to what they do. And then they sort of disseminate that within the organization as a proxy for, for a purpose versus let's say something like Patagonia where you know, the, they, they've started with that and it's built into what they're doing. You know, it's an outdoors company in effect and, and the products are an, uh, amended and, and curated and sourced and the, each individual item that goes into the, the clothing, um, is audited to make sure that it fulfills the, the purpose of the organization. Is the future of the organization every single commercial, um, entity has to have a tie of its purpose with its commercial you know, intent like Patagonia? I, I, I don't think there's a one size fits all model. I mean, what I would say is that um, if you asked an executive 10 years ago, if they had a social media strategy and they said, no, you'd forgive them. It's still early days for social media. Whereas if they said that today, you'd question their, uh, their competence. I think in the same way that in the next three to five years, people need to be able to answer that question of what is your company all about? Does your per- company stand for something besides just profitability, besides just EPS, besides just your own self-perpetuation. And if companies can't answer that question, they're going to increasingly find themselves uh, with less enthused customers. They're going to find themselves with less enthused employees who are definitely not nearly as motivated as you need them to be. Uh, I think the coming decade, we're going to see a lot more companies embrace purpose, but I don't think there can ever be a one-size-fits-all model. In the book, what I argue is try to figure out the one or two biggest business problems you face Try to figure out what the big issues are that you have, and then ask yourself, is there a way that purpose can play a role in helping you to unlock um, that problem? Um, I do hope there's an arms race in this area. I do hope that companies, you know, so many companies adopt it that then you have what you get to the point where companies have to do it better and better and better because it's no longer just a box tick of yes, we're purpose driven or no, we're not. But you instead move to a world where, yes, we're purpose driven and let us give you our metrics. Let us give you our results in the same way that we report our earnings, our sales, our market share. Let's have companies start reporting on their purpose metrics. That would be, I think, an interesting thing for employees, customers, potential employees to evaluate. Does this company just say they're doing good for the world or can they actually show me some transparent metrics on their website that convince me they are indeed doing so? So one of the things that's interesting about your examples in your book is that you you target a variety of different types of companies, everything from large established corporates to, to startups. And, and I feel that early stage startups that start with a purpose, um, in mind almost have an easier time than those that are kind of maybe halfway through their growth curve and then are now inspired to incorporate purpose. And I think I want to focus on those organizations and some of these questions around those because it, that, that process of transition is actually difficult. And, you know, you mentioned one example, which is it can start 
the book was written for, you know, the people in the front lines and, and it can sort of snowball in the, like the example you gave Citibank. But now let's focus on the leadership. How do you deduce purpose in an organization where leadership does have a desire to incorporate purpose, but where there might be 30 degrees tangential from each other in what that purpose should be? How have you seen companies navigate the leadership challenge of, uh, let's pretend we're Citibank, right? One group of people say, hey, look, we have the snowball effect from the front lines around room to read. But the COO has a view that we should be supporting um, better financial product use. And, and there's this other organization. How have you seen companies navigate that at sort of the growth startup phase or at the corporate phase? Well, I think purpose is strongest when whatever the company ultimately does and decides to do has a lot of fingerprints on it. And so I always my friends at companies to say, you know, survey your customers, survey your employees, figure out what do they care about, what's important to them. You're not going to get one answer. If you ask 100 people, you're probably going to get 10 or 15 or 20 different answers. But it's good to know what people really believe in. Ultimately, it's a leader's job to lead. So at a certain point, the leader has to say, the leaders have to say, thank you, everybody, for the input. And this is, this is the direction we're going in. And um, I don't think any company can be all things to all people. I don't think a company can say, well, we're going to stand for, you know, 15 different things. So ideally, through talking to customers, talking to employees, listening to input, um, when you do come up with something, even if it's not the thing that I chose, when I gave you input, I'm still going to feel good about it because you asked for my input. And you, I know that there was it was not just some random, capricious decision, right? When I was doing research for the book, I heard people complain about the fact that the boss's spouse would be appointed to the board of directors of some cause. And then miraculously, a week later, the company was told, this is our new com company cause. And people, you know, saw through that. They were very, you know, offended by that. What they wanted to be able to do is to give input on what they care about, what matters to them, and then know that they've been listened to. But ultimately, it's not an easy thing to come up with. But all, I think ultimately, leaders um, who listen and leaders who are able to make decisions will come up with will come up with an answer. Um, and they may trial something for a year. If it doesn't work, that's okay. You you made a good effort. You tried it. You still did some good for the world. There's always a version two. Hmm. We've had a unprecedented economic growth over the last, you know, easily 10 years since the last sort of recession and the, the sort of emergence of purpose incorporated um, has tracked with that. Do you think that it's something tied to the economy? Do you think that in good times we have the luxury of, of thinking this way and, and having it be a differentiator? I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit cynical here for the sake of the question, but do you think that if if there were a downturn and, and survival were the, the requirement of the company, do you think that a lot of these things would kind of fall by the wayside? No, I don't think so. Because it's just to me it would be uh, it's the sign that the world is just cynical that you care about helping others when times are good, but when times are not good, you don't care about helping others. Uh, as an example of this, when the global financial crisis hit, you know, a lot of people thought that Rimfried is going to have to lay off employees and thought we were going to have to cancel. Uh, projects. And the reality was that we grew through the global financial crisis. Our revenues grew year on year, every single year through the first uh, five years of the, of the global financial crisis. And part of the reason for that was that we went out and, and as we traveled around the world, we told people, yeah, your bonus might be down a little bit or your stocks might be down. But guess what? For a girl in rural Bangladesh or a kid in rural India, the GFC is going to hit harder for them than it hits for you. So please don't forget our little brothers and our little sisters out there. So I don't think purpose at all is tied to uh, 
to, to, to economics or the, or the general economic condition. I believe that it's that it's something that's permanently here. And if things do get tougher in the business world, then guess what? You're going to have to work harder than ever to differentiate yourself. You're going to have to work harder than ever to get a customer to care about you. And so when customers are a little bit more uh, less likely to spend money, why not give them that reason to say, well, this product, this service actually has a social outcome attached to it. Hmm. Fair enough. And that's great. That's a great statistic. Um, do you have to address culture first to drive a purpose within an organization or does purpose change a culture within an organization? I don't know. I think that's a little bit chicken and eggy. <laughs> Forgive me. I, mean, I think that companies that are values driven are probably going to be much more likely to want to embrace purpose. Um, but I think that it doesn't necessarily, I don't know that one necessarily is going to predate the other. I think quite often they're going to move in lockstep. Mm. So we always like to wrap up our, our podcast with a couple of fun questions. And, you know, it's been, it's been insane to see how much you've built and created and changed that you've created in, in the world. And there's probably very few things you feel you have left to do, uh, at least professionally, but maybe still in terms of, of your personal life, what's left on your bucket list? Well, professionally, there's still a lot that's there. I mean, I will, I'm, I will spend the next 15 plus years of my life working insanely hard to get room to read to bigger growth numbers from uh, 12.4 million kids today. Ideally, you know, we want to get to 20, 25, 30, 35 million children. We just keep growing and growing and growing. So I'll never, I'll never really be self-satisfied on, on the professional front. Uh, on the personal front, my wife and I are both really big um, runners and hikers. And so there's a whole bunch of places uh, ranging from Lebanon to Jordan uh, to Rwanda, where we want to get and get out and hike and run and, and see the world that way. Uh, there's other marathons. I've done 14 marathons, but there's a bunch of marathons ahead of us uh, that I'd love to do. Uh, so my bucket list to go back to do the Jungfrau Marathon in Switzerland, one of the most beautiful marathons in the world. And probably on my bucket list, there's at least you know 50 to 100 absolutely amazing books out there. I've read great reviews on. And the beautiful thing about being a reader is you never really can be caught up. There's just so many great books that are written. So I, I still, I probably read 30 to 40 books a year, but always still feel far behind. And so if I ever, if I ever do picture myself retiring, um, I think that my, uh, between reading, hanging out with my wife, drinking good wine and, and running and hiking, that would probably make for a pretty full life just in and of itself. That being said, I want to keep working my tail off for the foreseeable future. Well, I, I, on, the, on the topic of books, what, what's the top three books that have inspired you? Um, you know, I, recently the ones I've read, I really loved uh, Ivan Osnos, who is a writer for The New Yorker, uh, wrote a book called Age of Ambition, which is his take on modern China, which was absolutely um, just a fantastic read. Uh, I really loved Ashley Vance's bio of Elon Musk. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have already read that. Um, but that was one of my favorite books that I read in um, in 2016. If people really want to know, they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, John Wood RTR is my Twitter feed. And every year I publish my uh, top 10 list on Twitter, one one book at a time. Um, there's just so much great, so many great books out there. I probably about half half nonfiction, about half fiction. Um, but if people go to my Twitter feed, they'll be able to keep up with uh, whenever I read, I tend to review the book I read uh, and, you know, 180, 190 short characters. Best advice you've been given in your life? Go big or go home. Go big or go uh, home. I think, I think bold goals tend to attract bold people. 
I think bold people tend to attract other bold people, and I think wimpy goals attract wimpy people. Um, so I, I believe very much in you know setting very very bold goals and then recruiting uh, the most amazing people who will join in on that and do great things together. That's great. You you've written you know several books now, and um, and there's probably several more that I, I look forward to to having on on the shelf. And wondering is Zach. The Yak, a real yak, and tell us about the last time you've been to the Himalayas to revisit where it all started. Uh, Zach the Yak uh, was a book I wrote. Actually, it's called Zach the Yak with books on his back. And it's a book I wrote because a lot of our room to read investors said that their kids didn't really understand exactly why room to read needed to exist. So rather than telling a story through my eyes, I told it through the eyes of a magic yak uh, who delivers books to kids who need them. So, you know, six year olds, seven year olds all think that Zach is a hero because he's helping kids to get access to books. Um, Zach the Yak was self-published, and what's interesting about the new book, at least I think it's interesting, Purpose Incorporated, is I've also self-published this book. And the goal of self-publishing is to really make sure that the financial model is efficient, because I'm donating every dollar of my profits from the book to Room to Read. My personal goal is to fund 25 new libraries during the book's first year on the market that'll serve 10,000 kids. And I'm really lucky because there's a well-known um, angel investor in Vancouver named Shafin Diamond, the Victory Square Group, and Shafin's matching every single dollar of royalties that I give and every single dollar that my readers give uh, to Room to Read up to a quarter million dollars. So we're doing a really fun campaign during the book's first year on the market where I donate my royalties. Uh, readers hopefully give contributions to Room to Read. And if we get enough uh, of both of those, then Shafin matches, and that will get us to our goal of 25 new libraries. So Ideally, the purpose book indeed has its own purpose of every single time we sell a book, we get closer to that goal of 25 new libraries. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, on today's podcast, John. It's super inspiring to hear your story. Um, very helpful to, to hear your thoughts on some of the tricky questions regarding how to incorporate purpose into a company. And uh, hopefully the, the audience will will find the time to go and donate and contribute to Room to Read or join the next Tech Bikers. Yeah, I hope they do. I hope that they want to check out Room to Read. We're at roomtoread.org. Tech Bikers, of course, is very easy to find on the web. And I do hope people will check out Tech Bikers. It continues to grow. What's really cool is that the initial ride of Paris to London is now being joined by other rides. And if you see a ride you want to do, then join up with it. Maybe you have an idea for a route that's not doesn't currently have a Tech Bikers initiative, well, why not start one? Why not go out and start the next Tech Bikers ride? Uh, Easy Vidra, uh, Mark Jennings, the team are all fantastic leaders. I'm happy to work with them, and I'm happy that they brought us together. And so thanks to you, Carlos. Thanks to Miguel for having me on the show. And I do hope people will check out Purpose Incorporated and check out Tech Bikers and Room to Read. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.